Welcome to episode 13 of the Swansea Cyber Law and Security Podcast. I'm Sarah Kuraya, a doctoral researcher at Swansea University. I'm Patrick Bishop. I'm a senior lecturer also at Swansea University. And today we have a very special guest, Kate Hopkins, which I'll let you introduce yourself. Hi, Kate. Hi, everyone. Um, hi, I'm Kate. I'm a doctoral researcher in Cardiff University at the Data Justice Lab, and I'm very excited to be here. We're very excited to have you here. Also, this is a very good day for you to be recording a podcast with us because we're recording on the 29th of April. Is it April? Yeah. I can't remember what month we're in anymore. I it is, but I know it's April. <laughs> um, and it's actually the uh, Swansea Cardiff Varsity is going on. So... Oh. Don't get me started. <laughs> so, you know, we're in the middle of the COVID uh, lockdown crisis. So obviously the, the Varsity is a sports event. It's a sports competition between Swansea University and Cardiff University, which uh, happens every year. And it's actually happening virtually this year, believe it or not. So uh, anyway, it's uh, uh, we, this, we can consider this as another event in the Varsity calendar, if you like. And Kate is very privileged because we wouldn't usually countenance a, a Cardiff person being involved in our podcast, but we've made a very special exception today. I know, I know. I feel like I'm on very, very sacred ground right now, and I'm going to watch what I say very, very carefully in the next half an hour. <laughs> uh, right, yeah. Well, I should also say that, as always, the views expressed on this podcast do not represent those of our employers, research partners, or funders, etc. They are our personal views. So today we were going to talk about, guess, something COVID related. And, and the topic for today is around health data and privacy in the context of the response to the COVID crisis. So there has been some concerns, a little bit of controversy over the way in which government organizations are partnering up with private sector organizations and bringing together a large amount of data in order to draw insights that are relevant to managing this, this COVID crisis. So We've picked up on a few things on the news. There's been a little bit of coverage, and here I'm going to reserve uh, the analysis to UK, uh, the UK context. I, I, I don't know as much what, what's going on in, in, in other countries at the moment. I haven't actually looked beyond, but I should imagine that this is happening not just in the UK, but a lot more widely. Widely. So governments are bringing this data together. In order to do that, they're entering into commercial contracts with usually fairly large multinational tech companies. And there's also beginning to, there's a bit of a proliferation of these apps that have been developed to monitor symptoms, uh, collect local information on infections. And also there's ideas about developing apps which will enable the government to trace the contacts that people who have been diagnosed with COVID-19 have had with other people so as to enable the lockdown to be relaxed. So if, if we are able to trace everybody who's been in contact with those infected, you know, if you haven't, then you can sort of resume normal life. That's the idea anyway. So just to give a little bit of context to, to the discussion here, I'll just say a little bit about what, 
what's been happening in the UK, and then and then we can we can talk about what what our thoughts are on this. So back on the 28th of March, so last month, the government announced a new health data platform that was being put together. So it's a big COVID-19 data store. It's being led by NHS affiliate bodies, so NHS England and Improvement and NHS X. So essentially bodies of of the National Health Service uh, uh, here in the UK. So they're leading it. They're collecting together data such as the the phone calls that are received by the 111, which is the non-emergency number here, Um, data that was already within the NHS. So, you know, if you know a little bit about the types of data the NHS holds, there's uh, something called the patient register, which includes, uh, as it says, it's a a register of all patients uh, that have ever registered with a doctor essentially Um, and they've got other data sets there as well. They're also bringing together with all of this the the test results, um, data about the availability of NHS resources at a national level but also at a local level so you know beds in hospitals that sort of thing. So this initiative is bringing all of this together, linking it all together to try and enable better policy decisions so so you can plan in advance if if capacity is being reached that sort of thing when you read the government's announcement it seems to be very much oriented towards these sorts of strategic decisions on resources that that's how it read to me when i first read it so yeah so that's that's the the main gist of it the data is what they call pseudo anonymized so once all of these individual data sets, they will have to be linked in some way. So some sort of unique identifier has to be created in it to be able to do this. So in, in some countries, this is very easy to do because in some countries, people have identity cards that have a number. So there's a unique number for each person, each citizen or each individual who is residing in that country. In the UK, it's not like that. So this is actually a very complicated thing it's it might seem simple but linking together 111 calls with the patient register is actually quite you know it's not as easy as linking two numbers that are the same right so there's quite a lot of work that goes into just linking all these things together and once it's linked then you can consider the data pseudo-anonymized if you remove things like date of birth and name and whatever and you just leave that unique ID that's linked things together. So to do this a number of commercial partners have been brought in uh, and this is where some of the concerns have been raised. So we've got Microsoft is providing the cloud storage facility and some of the infrastructure that allows this work to happen because obviously we're talking about hugely large data sets. Then we have Palantir Technologies. Palantir is working with a UK-based company called Faculty to actually integrate the data. So the thing that I was describing before of actually taking these individual data sets and finding a way to link the right people together, the right units in in each data set together. That's the thing that Palantir and Faculty are, are doing. 
and then they're also using some Google tech, not some Google G Suite stuff to actually collect data, operational data on the ground from hospitals about occupancy and stuff like that. So, yeah, pretty big companies. They've been brought in to, to put this data set together so the government can know what's going on, make decisions. And essentially what they're saying is that once this is over, the data will either be destroyed or returned to the NHS. So this is the main story. <laughs> There's other smaller stories about, you know, the tracing apps and some of them are being also developed in partnership between governments and tech companies and others are just being developed by tech companies themselves. So that's also happening in parallel. But I think we could start by talking about this. So this is, this is like a massive data store being created. And yeah, so what, what are your thoughts? Any initial thoughts? Kate's obviously a little shy. <laughs> I wasn't sure if that was directed at me or Patrick. <laughs> I can go though. If it's, you're throwing it over to me, I can very happily pick that up. Well, I'll defer so, to the expert and I'll, I'll chip in with my... <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's do it that way. Various so, occasions. <laughs> so for me, this speaks to a sort of a classic underlying argument when we're talking about surveillance and that's this idea of um, privacy versus security. So one of the kind of underlying justifications for surveillance of any kind like, is often citizens are asked to surrender their privacy in order to mitigate a risk. But once that privacy is surrendered, it's often very difficult to claw it back. So if we think about sort of airport security in a sort of a post 9-11 world, for example, the sort of the procedures that we were asked to start doing after 9-11, we've never really seen those kind of drop away, have we? And this is sort of one of the things that has tended to happen. Surveillance measures are introduced as a way to kind of deal with some sort of risk that's been identified. Now, in this particular case, COVID-19, um, you know, we're not always going to be in lockdown. At some point, we're going to have to kind of open up again. And the questions we sort of really need to be asking ourselves right now are questions around what privacy are we being asked to give up in order to mitigate this risk? And what will happen to our privacy rights once we're, we've got this risk a bit more under control? So that's the sort of the, the points for me. Um, it sort of really speaks to that very core argument in surveillance studies. But there are also some more obvious questions for me about aligning health data with the commercial partners. So what I sort of I'm interested in is what we know about these companies and the way that they handle their data. So what privacy are we being asked to give up in order to kind of track COVID-19 and to keep some sort of control over it? And once, the, once the, the risk is more under control, is this going to be a permanent change for our privacy rights? Or is there some way we can claw it back? That's going to be sort of kind of interesting. And I'm sort of really interested in this idea about the commercial partners as well. Um, so for me, in an ideal world um, where the NHS is functioning and it's fully funded, um, I'd be sort of asking, why can't we do this as part of the NHS's function? Why does this have to be done by commercial companies? Those were my initial thoughts on this story anyway. Yeah, yeah. 
did, did you want to come in on on that Patrick? yeah i mean i mean i think kate's hit the nail right on the head there with the the, the dilemma at the heart of of this but i was interested i was reading a a piece by uh, he's a very prominent computer scientist and nigel shad both uh, from oxford and his view is basically that the normal rule shouldn't apply because this is a public health emergency. So we can, if we split the, the issues up into two separate ones, so obviously there's what we do with our approach post COVID-19 crisis and whether we continue with this approach. Because I, I mean, I absolutely take Kate's point that when the state acquires powers for itself, it's always very hesitant to relinquish those powers. Uh, you know, we've seen that time and time again. But while we're in the midst of the crisis, I wonder what Kate and you, Sarah, think about that view that, well, if we're talking about a balance here between privacy, privacy and the public good, as it were, do we stick fast with the current approach where we highly value privacy or do we take the view as, as a society that, well, privacy is now less important? and we all need to sacrifice our privacy concerns to help in that public health emergency. Yeah. Yeah, I I I yeah, my my view is kind of I I think that the government um is quite right to do everything in its power with the data that it, that it's that is at, at its disposal uh, to to respond to 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 the this crisis in in the best way possible and I think all of that cannot happen without all of this cross-referencing of all of these different disparate databases that the NHS have in different places and other sources of data. I think the, really the only way to, to respond is to, in a way, you can't do it without those unique identifiers. You can't really link things together to get a broader picture without at some level even if it's within the black box of the machine but at some level the names the dates of birth the addresses the personal information is essential to create something that is of value here to 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 respond to to the public health crisis so i and i think that's um uh, and uh, you know it's not just in this crisis. I think in, in a lot of health-related research, there's a lot of benefits and other types of research. There is a lot of benefit from being able to, to uh, uh, look at data in, the, in this way and, and see um, and, and test whether things are working um, uh, and uh, plan ahead in terms of capacity and delivery, all of that. So, but with but but that said, um, um, I, I I do have some some concerns uh, uh, about, I guess the the what Kate was saying before. So our ability to 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 really be confident that the the use of the data will be as contracted. You know, if if, if I, I am. I'm certain that, you know, whatever contract Palantir has with the government, from what I've seen, at least anyway, but, you know, I, I'd be very surprised if it wasn't, you know, uh, doing all that it's possible to ensure that the data is only used for the purpose that it's intended. And I mean, that's, that's kind of the, 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 the legal line in the UK, isn't it? You, ha you have to, uh, you define how the data is being used and what for, and any use outside of that w wouldn't be legal. But it is 
concerning that to the extent that we are so reliant on these big tech companies to deliver these products, it, it is concerning whether or not we're able to hold them accountable in any way for any misuse and whether there is in fact control as to what goes on you know, in the, in the post-COVID world. So that's one thing. Developing that sort of, of capacity in-house, I think it's, it's, it's the only way to, to ensure that this kind of research is, is done in a way that is, in, <laughs> to, to, to the extent that it's possible, accountable, you know, democratically accountable. If, if, it's, if a government does something wrong, we, you know, there is a recourse, you know, they can be voted out of government, they can be held accountable for their actions. What happens what the decisions Palantir makes, they're, they're not really open to any kind of scrutiny. So that, that is concerning. But the other thing that I think is worth thinking about is the extent to which being able to identify the individual within these, these large data, data sets and being able to, to say, okay, these individuals with these characteristics are not, they're, they're for some reason, they're proportionately, you know, significantly more infect, infected than other groups, for example. Or these individuals, we know from their GPS coordinates that they have been more than five miles away from their house or whatever it is. So I think there is a risk that being able to drill down to the individual level could, could shift responsibility from the wider problem to creating a smaller problem that is a lot more manageable, which is problematic individuals, <laughs> which is a lot more is a lot easier for, for a government to deal with and claim success at dealing with problematic individuals, than it is to deal with the wider issue of, of uh, public health and you know the funding of the NHS and the supply chains and all this blah blah blah. So that's my other concern. You know, I think you're absolutely right in sort of going back to what you sort of said about um, the transparency issues. I think that's really key to this debate here. And when I was sort of talking about maybe in, a, you know, in an ideal world when all of this data collection and analysis would be done within the NHS. And the reason that I think that is because there's a layer of transparency that takes place in these public bodies that we don't see in private and commercial companies such as Microsoft. There's a, a veil to the practices that perhaps we wouldn't have if it was taking place within a sort of a publicly funded body. My question for the future is that, because I think it's becoming increasingly obvious, certainly to me, that the key to getting this crisis under control is data. You know, if we look at countries that are successfully managing the crisis at the moment or more successfully than the UK one of the sort of features of it is the fact that people are tracking their symptoms and they have like a really clear idea of what the spread of the virus looks like within their boundaries so it's becoming increasingly clear to me that you know data is key to getting this crisis under control and I guess what I'm kind of saying is that maybe there's a way that this could be done with more transparency so that we don't sort of have to have this concern in the back of our mind of, you know, what do we do once this is over? What are we going to be asked to give up in terms of our privacy in order to get this crisis under control? And how are we going to get it back once the crisis has abated? I think there's, there's two issues here. One, obviously, there's 
is transparency and I, I see the point or the, the potential problem with the private sector involvement is that they can often rely on the, the commercially sensitive argument when it comes to transparency. And of course you have to have transparency first before you can have accountability. We need to know that something's gone wrong before you can take action against anyone who might be at fault for what's gone wrong. But I'm not sure I'm so optimistic that a tightly state-run approach would be that much better mm-hmm. in terms of both transparency and accountability. Um, and the other argument, I think, in favour of the private sector involvement in these cases is, you know, this is an unprecedented, and it's a word that's been overused, but if, if ever there was a case where the word was appropriate, it's today. This is an unprecedented crisis, and why would you limit yourself to, well, just involve the state or just involve the private sector? Why can't, if they can't do it at this time, they never will be able to do it. Can private and public sectors work in harmony so you harness in as much data collection and analysis power as is possible? Oh, you old cynic, you, Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, you know, it's an absolutely, you know, it's a very good response in in that you know we need to use what is available to us in order to kind of get this crisis under control for me as well it's sort of one of the issues that it raises is this idea of consent as well so as researchers we obviously know that we have um, a responsibility to obtain informed consent from our participants and this is also a discourse that is fully present in the world of healthcare as well, this idea of informed consent. But it seems to me that within the whole sort of the plan from what we can see it, there's a, there's a certain amount of ambiguity as to this data's final destination. And I sort of think that there's a world of difference between them saying that they're going to destroy this data or they're going to give it to the NHS. And it's sort of just raising some questions for me about the nature of, you know, when we're consenting to hand over this information about ourselves, what is the actual nature of that consent? Because is it, can we really term it as fully informed consent if we're not entirely sure where that data is going to end up and in whose hands and for what purpose? Yeah, I think the, the ethical use of data like this by governments actually requires a level of, of, of consent within the public. And I think at the moment at the moment there's probably quite a wide there's probably a wide consent a consensus that that you know people would would rather this is my guess. Obviously I have no <laughs> no evidence to back this up, but I, I should imagine that in a situation of crisis, you know, people have a, a tendency to to you have to trust someone to try and resolve the crisis and the government seems to be in in the best position to do that. So I think in this moment, there's probably consent in in that sense. But I think that quite often, it's easier to think of consent in in the legalistic sense. So in terms of, can we use this data legally without relying on said informed consent, which is probably true in this case anyway. Uh, but that's a very different question to, to the, the ethical question of, will we continue to have uh, this general sense of trust and consent post the crisis? I'm not sure that that, that would be the case. I think now is definitely a, a, special, a special time. <laughs> the use of this sort of large data sets combined together, et cetera, et cetera, even though 
there is huge potential for, for these to, to yield, you know, insights that could change how we evaluate policies and how we develop policies. It, it could be it could be a game changer if if the government could do this sort of thing in, in a in a in a bigger way beyond the crisis. But I'm not sure that there is the cons there is consensus out there that that there is public trust and consent in that sense to, to do that to do that post the crisis. I don't know if I'm making any sense. I feel like I've rambled on a bit. <laughs> I mean, I think at the moment, consent, and I've, I've used the word just consent there without the, uh, the other words informed and um, explicit, but certainly, well, maybe explicit consent, I think at the moment would be very easy to get. But I think that consent needs to have a, uh, some sort of sunset clause attached to it. So while people might be accepting of limits or restrictions on their privacy at the moment, you know, when the crisis is over, whenever that happens, then that consent needs to be revisited. Um, so, you know, that that's the danger as well, is that, it, you know, if there is some form of consent, and as I agree with you, Sarah, I think there would be at the moment because of the, the ongoing crisis. Yeah. But that needs to be carefully monitored. So if the situation changes, so, you know, so in, you know, as a basic GDR principle, you can opt out at any time. I think it's yeah. the bottom line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the data governance stuff is 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 quite important going forward. I, I'm sure Kate will have something to say about this, but I think that in this moment of crisis, I think um, these companies are um, also benefiting from the experience of working with these enormous data sets and bringing them together in new ways and working out how to use them. So obviously, you know, they're, 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 they're being paid to do this job, uh, but they're, they're also going to benefit from doing this job in the first place in the future. And I think whatever data governance um, structures are, are kind of put in place, because I, I have no doubt that this kind of big data store style thing is going to, this is probably just the beginning of, of this kind of capability, but we definitely need the governance to be there to support this kind of work to be done in the public good and not just so that a handful of companies can essentially hold governments to ransom because they have all of the capability and all of the know-how um, when, uh, which, which they can, you know, obviously it's their, their own debtor is to make money. So obviously that's what they're going to do with it. They're going to make money um, and, uh, and not necessarily uh, extract all of the public value in the sense of uh, research. What, what are your thoughts on the governance side of things, uh, Kate? This is, yeah, this is a really, really interesting one. And it's something that um, researchers in the Data Justice Lab have looked into in quite a lot of detail. And it's this aligning of sort of data governance and the idea of good citizenship. So we're collecting sort of these huge amounts of data about people and the data justice lab has sort of looked at the way in which the collation and processing of this day these data it's an increasing feature of governance and it's being sort of used to inform our ideas about what 
good citizenship is. So if we look at the way kind of data are used to categorize citizenship um, in order to allocate services and sort of predict the future, that to me is quite a kind of interesting point. So if we think about, for example, when we finally come out of lockdown, the data that we're collecting is going to be used to see, to decide where people are safe to start coming out of lockdown, who is safe to start going back to work and to start returning to public life. And it kind of leaves space for ideas about areas of good citizenship and bad citizenship you know we're sort of leaving space for these kind of ideas about you know the good citizens are now allowed to come out of their houses and return to work and return to public life because they've they've followed the rules and they've got COVID-19 under control whereas the bad citizens they haven't um we, I've sort of seen some of these arguments and discourses with this kind of public shaming of people who are kind of breaking the lockdown and you see, you see these news stories of people in parks and public spaces with no contextualization about those individuals um, as, say, classed or gendered individuals and some of the kind of nuances that are taking place there. Is that what you mean? I feel like I suddenly just went off on a tangent. <laughs> I th- I, yeah, I feel like you, you were talking about data being used in policy making and sort of yeah. make, making decisions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, all, I think all, all of that is super valid. I was kind of thinking about like the governance of the data rather than the governance that happens because of the data. That's all good. So good. Um, Patrick. You're a fan of regulation. <laughs> I am. Do you think we've we've got this space regulated enough in terms of um, is there is regulating bulk collection of data and uh, value extraction in any way possible or desirable? Do you think, or is it are we way past that now? given that people give away their data quite freely anyway and all of the time. Uh, And that seems to be the operational model for the vast majority of these kind of digitally based businesses and platforms. Yeah, well, I think it's possible to regulate even more heavily, um, you know, data gathering, collection, use, etc. Whether it's feasible is a different question. And whether it's feasible at a reasonable cost when there's so many other difficult choices that need to be made in terms of state expenditure is a different yeah. question. Yes, if you you know you quadruple quadruple the, the staff in the information commission, for example, then you might adopt more stringent regulatory approaches. But of course that's not feasible and no government's going to make that decision when faced with you know the need to increase spending on schools particularly hospitals at this time, etc. And I think there could be some debate as to whether it's even desirable, as you said, because I think since the, you know, the, the digital revolution, particularly um, the huge expanse, uh, expansion rather of social media, what we mean by privacy, I think has changed. Uh, and I think generally speaking, people are more accepting of a greater level of intrusion in terms of, of privacy, you know, because not, not least they put a lot of private information about themselves into the public domain on a routine basis. So I think it be, 
in order to get the things the right way around before you have a debate about well how best to regulate it and what resources are needed what you know what agencies are required what powers are required etc then i think you need to start first with a debate about what we actually mean by privacy in the era of data collection in the era of big data uh, etc i think that has to come first and then that would inform uh, the regulatory scheme that followed I don't know the answer to that question. Yeah. yeah, it is. I think it's a debate to be had. But what I am certain of is, I think what is meant by privacy is evolving, and what we mean by privacy today in 2020 is very different than what was maybe meant by privacy 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that um, to some extent, if if the concern is, and and in in my case, I think that the key concern is. Um, <laughs> A concern with with social justice in a way okay because i i think that perversely these companies are benefiting massively from the current crisis because we're all uh just living through uh the internet at the moment be it online shopping or you know communication we're, if anything and, and and especially if if a lot of the local businesses go out of business you know in 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 the current situation it's the big retailers online retailers that are going to benefit etc etc so that's that's one aspect of it so they're massively benefiting through the crisis they're also the companies that hold the key to resolve the crisis on one level and then at the other end of it because we've seen massive fiscal intervention from all you know from ac- across the world you know the uk the us china you know massive fiscal in- intervention by states and eventually who's going to pay for it is 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 the citizen you know through taxes most likely you know it's it's quite in the bigger picture, I think this is quite a perverse situation in, in, in terms of social justice um, and in terms of who reaps the benefits of uh, the crisis itself, uh, but also, you know, the, the, the government response to the crisis perversely is just going to benefit the same five companies, most likely more than anybody else. So this is something that kind of underlines my kind of interaction with these with these uh, questions that that's sort of my impetus or where I'm coming from the thing that I'm actually concerned about any thoughts <laughs> so I wonder if it's maybe a sort of a question of to what extent do the ends justify the means in this particular case you know, we sort of all in agreement that we obviously we need to get this under control and we need to use the resources that are available to us in order to sort of, um, you know, work our way through this crisis. And it is that sort of that age old debate, isn't it? Do do we do what's necessary to get through this? Do do, do our, are our actions justified by the fact that we will get this under control eventually, hopefully? Um, yeah, it's quite an interesting. I don't think there's a podcast in the world long enough to get that debate under control. <laughs> and I think, as always, the, the 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 solution that is advocated by various groups is ideologically driven. Hmm. So you, you know, if you if you sort of broadly speaking of the right, then you might be more relaxed about private intervention, about profits on the back of the crisis, etc. If you're more left-leaning, then you might be more concerned about private intervention and see the solution as essentially 
uh, statist. You know, it's something that needs to be driven by the public yeah. sector. Um, so any debate will be influenced by that as well. Yeah, I think people yeah, see yeah. the solution very true, true. in a way that tallies with their worldview anyway. Yeah, that's true. Although I think a lot of people on the right would also be, or on the right in the sense of free market kind of advocates, would, would still be concerned with this incredible monopoly that exists, you know, in the hands of, you know, the five companies or whatever, how I, may, I, I haven't counted them in a while, but, you know, Microsoft, Apple, Google, Amazon, monopolies aren't good for business, if, you know, even if you're, they have a tendency to, well, first of all, they don't behave by market rules, but also we see it all the time with these big companies buying buying off smaller companies uh, to, to, to essentially not allow them to, 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 to compete, right, and all this. So, so I think maybe on this point, there could be a wider consensus between, across the, the ideological divide that, you know, it's, it's, it's not really good for anybody to have five companies in charge of the world <laughs> maybe this is this has got very political our podcast doesn't usually get this political oh it doesn't it no no <laughs> oh no yeah yeah um well that's a pity because I was gonna sort of try and change the chat tack slightly and ask some questions about a kind of um, an intersectional approach to COVID-19 and I don't think that's oh. going to help with our political problem at all. <laughs> <laughs> oh go on I think we've got we've got a, a few more minutes and I think this would be a good place to to end it because I think we've 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 covered quite quite a bit but we haven't talked at all about this idea of intersectionality so what what were you gonna what were you thinking? Well, so some of my sort of thoughts and observations as I've been kind of watching this um, sort of crisis unfold, um, there's been a couple of things that have caught my attention. So the Trades Union Council have raised some concerns about black and minority ethnic workers and sort of asked, uh, is there something going on with the virus that makes um, BAME people more susceptible? Is the mortality rate higher in BAME workers? Um, and similarly, The Guardian have raised some concerns about the pr uh, proportion of men to women who seem to be contracting the virus and sort of having a higher mortality rate. Um, so when we're talking about sort of this sort of mass collection of data and this idea of ends justifying the means and all of that. And I, I wonder if these questions are being asked because I'm not seeing much in the way of actually addressing these problems from the government at the moment. You know, I'm not seeing much in the way of um, the people in charge of responding to this crisis. Are they asking, is there something going on here that makes, say, men more susceptible or um, people from black or minority ethnic backgrounds more susceptible. Um, so if we're thinking about like the ends justifying the means and all of these um, subjects, I guess what I'm asking is in terms of an intersectional approach, are we doing enough to actually understand this virus? The, the, the different ways in which it's affecting like yeah. different groups. Yeah. 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 I, I was trying to find this article that I read um, I think it was on, it might have been on the New Yorker, 
I will dig it out and I will add it to the to the show notes. But it it, it was by a historian, a, a, an academic who um, has written about it might have been the Spanish flu mm. uh, and how governments introduced these cards that people uh, at one point you you had um, a card that said that you you had already had it. Mm. Um, and if you if you hadn't already had it, then you know employers wouldn't employ you. And that so so essentially in the aftermath of this massive pandemic, all of these essentially people who were already structurally disadvantaged basically <laughs> suffered a lot more. And 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 the regulation that came in to try and contain the the aftermath and make sure that it didn't come back again disproportionately affecting certain people that's definitely something that historically has happened before Mm. so maybe maybe um it's it's definitely worth uh, keeping an eye on and and making sure that the data is being used to actually bring these issues to light and sort of make them visible Mm. yeah 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 yeah, no, I completely agree. I've seen those stories as well, sort of bouncing around in this idea of carrying around a immunity card kind immunity of Immunity card, that's it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, in this context, they call it an immunity passport, didn't they? Or immunity passport, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Will it be blue or red, we ask ourselves. <laughs> that is the big question. <laughs> well, Occasional show on Radio 4 called The Long View with John von Friedland, the um, Guardian columnist. Mm. And he often picks two points in history very, very distant in terms of time. And it's amazing how often history repeats itself and how often the solutions are the same. Yeah. Mm. The 2018 Spanish flu pandemic, you know, the solution there is now being proposed with a different title. Um, yeah. 2020. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, would you either of you like to add anything? I think this maybe we can we can leave it here. We've had uh, I think we've had a good go at this topic. <laughs> uh, no, just to thank you for inviting me on. I've had a like a great time chatting with everyone, and hope you've enjoyed it as well. <laughs> good, good. Do you have any free advertising? So this is a thing that we often do at the end of the podcast, which is sharing uh, advertising something that we think is cool or was amusing or any of the above (laughs) that you'd like to share with the listeners or something to do with your uh, work or the data justice labs work anything that you'd like to share um, I guess I could just direct people to um, the uh, data governance projects that the Data Justice Lab have continued and they've, they've published now. Um, and just this idea about sort of good citizenship now being kind of directed by data collection. So they've kind of looked at the ways in which data is used to categorise citizenship. It's been used to allocate services and sort of predict the future. And of course, we know that data do- doesn't just exist within some sort of, uh, you know, Um, vacuum yeah yeah, no it's not it's not like that at all you know there's a a lot of things that go into data collection and whatever and they've done sort of a really good job of kind of examining that um so if that point is of any interest to you i would recommend having a look at the data justice labs website that's my plug for the day and you're welcome excellent (laughs) very good you got any free advertising patrick oh no have we lost you patrick i'm back now 
Oh, oh, you're back. <laughs> Welcome back. Oh, it's a good thing that you weren't online when Kate was saying all those terrible things about you just wow. now. <laughs> Still, he's back now, so we should stop Quite a nice segue, it. actually, into our next podcast where we'll be discussing the digital divide. Yes. Ooh, My lack of reliable bad. Wi-Fi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We were just doing some free advertising and I was wondering if you had anything that you wanted to give a shout to not before re- we go. Not much going on in the traditional way, um, <laughs> but um, for anyone who's listening, who's got interest in um, cyber matters, cyber crime, terrorism, etc., then just to let know that we still open for applications on our innovative and brilliant MA in cyber crime and terrorism. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, excellent. And I've got one which has got which is not as serious as yours, um, where either of yours were. It's uh, essentially, I'll, again, I'll add this to the show notes, but it, it's a company that is essentially selling farm animals and particularly llamas. Uh, so you can you can you can subscribe and they will add a farm animal to your Zoom calls, so you can su- <laughs> you can um, surprise everybody on your Zoom call by having a llama join you. So that really amused me um, this week. I would, it's not <laughs> Sarah, is it? They, you can have goats, pigs. Yeah, you can have, there's a full range of animal farms, that, uh, animal farms, farm animals <laughs> that you can have. Um, I am seriously considering starting a, a side hustle with, with, uh, with a cat. Um, <laughs> there's got to be a market out there for Zoom cats. <laughs> well, I'm making a, a, a Zoom apparel online store. Yeah. Well, like, all in one uh, looks like a suit. That you can easily put your arms in, um, and so whatever's below sort of chest. Uh, Patrick, that's been done. It's been done. It's been done. <laughs> Always too late. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe you could try other ranges of, uh, you know. Um... I have to recall my email that was sent to Dragon's <laughs> Den now, aren't I? Uh, <laughs> brilliant. <laughs> Okay, Fab. Well, thank you very much, both of you, and thank you to our listeners, and see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Okay. I'm going to do it. Just going to have a sip of my tea. <laughs> what was that? I oh, saw it. I forgot. Is Kate. Yeah, it was Katie Vaughan inviting me to a Zoom meeting. You're joking. Oh, honest to God. So as regular listeners of our podcast will know, <laughs> all 25 of them, it, this is almost a feature, I think, that whenever we record, we, we get a phone call from, from Katie Vaughan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, amazing. So anyway, as I was saying...